0: Today's episode of Talking Cop is a special live event that happened this afternoon here in Sharm El Sheikh on the Bankers for Net Zero Pavilion with the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Right Honorable Grant Shapps, Global Head of Commercial Banking Sustainability at HSBC Natalie Blythe, and Will Jackson Moore, Global ESG Leader at PwC.
1: So I guess first and foremost, what actions can private financial institutions
2: take to support the transition to net zero? Thank you very much. Well, fund it. That's that's, that's the key the key thing. Um, first of all, thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. And congratulations to bankers for net zero for everything you guys have been uh, doing. Um, I think uh, continuing this is absolutely the right way to go. Uh, the, the, the simple. I mean, I was being a bit flippant, but the simple answer is fund it. Um, and fund it because not only is that the right thing to do, and uh, you know positive uh, in terms of the challenge we face with, with climate change, but also because I think we're just normalizing now. We're in the phase where you know when we had uh, the presidency at the beginning, uh, when Aloc took it over, thirty percent of the world's GDP was signed up. Now it's ninety percent of the world. So we've done the kind of a lot of the signing up. Now we just have to normalize it into everyday business. And this slightly weird department, weirdly named department, weird about the department that I run called Bayes or the department for business, energy, and the industrial strategy, but also includes climate and research, science, R&D. The the reason actually it does hang together um, pretty well is um, business and climate are two sides of the same coin. And I predict That Now we've got the world signed up, that from this COP onwards to the UAE next year, uh, businesses just doing things which are good for the environment is also good for business and just becomes the normal business practice. The best reason to fund it is the right thing to do, and it's also going to be the financially sensible thing to do as well.
0: Uh, building on that one, uh, being a bank, and fund it, uh, fund it, we will do. Uh, But we do more than just funding. So if you look at an SME, they're the backbone of society and the economy. They're the backbone of supply chains. Supply chains are 80% of the carbon, in fact, broader and human rights footprint on the planet. Um, So we have to do facilitation transition risk mitigation as well as transition funding. Um, And these are the most vulnerable to policy and supply chain shocks. So we can't do it on our own. We have to have collaboration. We have to have the environment and the policy that works together to enable this funding to get to the right place. In trade, there's a 1.7 trillion trade finance gap. We need to make funding available to get greater access to finance. And we can do that by deep supply chain financing but again we need the right environment to do that from a policy support
2: well, well look i buy everything that you just said and by the way i may be the first business secretary i've not checked the facts at all here so i'll throw this one out there and wait for the internet to correct me but um i saw so what you said about smes is absolutely right i started my printing company 32 years ago in nine days time eight days time eight days time so and that printing company is still going to this uh uh, day, uh, my financing was from Midland Bank, the forerunners to HSBC. That's still still with HSBC to this day, thirty two years later. I've been out of the business more than I longer than I was in it because I went into politics, and it's probably why it survived so long. But anyway, it's it still runs to this day. And SMEs, I think you're absolutely right. Are the, the, the lifeblood of this country? Not just of business, but actually of the societal impacts of it. And those SMEs. Uh, are the people we now need to think about in so much detail? I was just addressing a lunchtime meeting uh, of some very, very big British businesses. I mean, it was British, a uh, BT group. It was, um, you know, um, some of the some of the banks and and the rest of them. But actually, they're already well advanced on this agenda. They've got ESG officers and all this kind of thing. You know, I bet most small businesses like are not in that place. And so making this something which is baked into everything. And I think that, um, to, to, to your point, having the regulatory framework to make that happen is important as well. And to come back to my original point, the fact that unusually in Britain, it's the business secretary who is also the energy climate secretary, actually is a big advantage here because we can set the rules to help work um, the, 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 the sort of um, the template that I hope financing will help fund and, and follow
0: First of all, thank you for your business. And I'm glad that it's been repeat business over many years. (laughs) That sounds like some good customer experience. I will look into the account afterwards. Um, Secondly, I think that you're right. The big corporates have got a lot of knowledge. They've got a lot of data and know-how. And that needs to be cascaded down. Because the SMEs, they don't have the data. They don't have the know-how. And they don't have the resource. So we need to make sure. And they're all part of somebody else's supply chain. So we need to make sure that we pull together and cascade that down to enable them to qualify to participate because they wake up one morning and we hear this now, they no longer qualify to participate in a big buyers or a buyers supply chain because they can't demonstrate that they've got a decent carbon footprint. They can't demonstrate they're on a transition journey with their ESG scoring. So, the banks can help as well facilitate by getting some very simple tooling into them to do the carbon calculation, to do that ESG scoring, to make sure that they can participate in the future in these sort of supply chains. So, it's exciting times, but do you still print paper?
2: <laughs> Actually, I mean, this is the remarkable thing about having a printing company after 32 years. By the way, I only just discovered last month that I still had some sort of guarantees down or something. I put my house on the line when I, you know, I didn't even have a house at the time. I don't know what I put on the line. But anyway, I finally managed to get out of them. I didn't even know I had those obligations. Um, we don't owe you anything. You owe us money. That's, it's that way around. So I just want to put that on the record. Um, but um, so, so uh, printing, which has changed beyond all recognition in the last 32 years. When I started that printing company, there were no inkjet printers that could print your letterhead in color. You had to go to a printing company to do that. Uh, the internet hadn't been, uh, it had just about been invented. It wasn't uh, popularized. Um, so you couldn't go and get your brochure or your catalog online. And so people relied on on printing it all. So uh, as I say, the tribute's not to me, I'm afraid, because I left the business many years ago to focus on uh, on, on politics. But the, uh, but, but the ingenuity of the directors who I appointed, who were just people who came and joined the business, I, I didn't, I, these weren't people I knew up front. Um, by and large, who still run the business today, have demonstrated all of that incredible flexibility and the ingenuity that's taken them from still being able to run a printing business, and yes, printing on paper still, card and other things, uh, in ways which are probably unimaginable when it started. Much more bespoke, much digital, much more bespoke. And um, it's the same kind of adaptation, if I may stretch the metaphor, that's required for the entire economy and the small businesses. They, those, the same business owners will now need to work out how to do all of this tremendous adaptation without the ESG officer probably in place in many of them, but just make it, make it part of the way that they do business and adapt to the new world. And it, it, there's a wider point here. I'll stop. But the wider point is, just a hint at it, it's why it's so important that climate adaptation isn't something which is difficult and complicated and challenging, but it's just common sense, actually financially sensible. And I'll give you a simple example. Who here now, with energy prices where they are, doesn't think it's a good idea to sort out, you know, the energy leaks in your building? It's going to probably pay for itself twice as fast as it would have done a year ago. So there are things which now just become doable, which wouldn't have been before and have a nice impact on climate change as well.
0: So certainly on adaptation. <laughs> Okay, but but business models changing is really serious, um, and the the decoupling from natural resource use, whether it's water, carbon, anything really, um, is really critical. We're seeing fantastic examples with SMEs doing this, but again, we need to facilitate it. Um, we're also looking at, we've got three levers really. It's to transition our existing clients of today, and some of those help them. We've got a great Scottish waste company who is now. The landfill costs go up. So the operating costs are up. So we reduce the landfill cost, recycle the construction materials, new revenue stream coming in from the recycled material and reduce greenhouse gases. So it's a win, win, win. You're absolutely right. This is a business case for growth and profitable growth. If these SMEs really do the CapEx, the CapEx probably has a higher return on investment. So it's a must. But it's a huge CapEx demand that's required. And these business models are going to be changing all over the place. And what we also need to be funding is the the new economy. So there's the sort of sustainable technology startups. And I do believe that the UK is a great place to power those startups that are going to help those existing corporates of the day, your printing company with the technologies, come through and be the new economy of tomorrow and the infrastructure that goes with it as well. So there's another lever. So the existing clients, the whole supply chain, sector by sector, and then these new entrepreneurs, we really need to back them and get the funding in the right place. Should
2: we hand the microphone <laughs> right <Yeah>. past me?
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so one of the really important elements that we were talking about here is supporting SMEs and data for SMEs. And as you know, we're in the process with with the British Business Bank and with all of our, our members of, of doing a a, a workshop on SMEs and we hope to have that piloted and launched by COP28 and that's really about how do we actually reach SMEs, give them the support, get the right data to them and I think from a from an auditing and from a kind of an accountancy perspective that's one of the, the big gaps here isn't it is how do we actually verify what we know and, and greenwash is being it's becoming a very big thing so I'd be very interested in your thoughts as well.
3: Specifically for for SMEs, and as you touched on, they don't have an ESG officer. Um, And particularly around scope three emissions, even the world's largest organizations, and I've spoken to many of them while I've been here, are really struggling with scope three. And it's all about the data. And I think the the banks do have a a good role to play in encouraging a kind of common data platform around gathering that scope three data. Because if you've got the world's largest retailers and manufacturers struggling to do it, a small printing business, probably not that small, but modest-sized printing business, isn't going to have the capability to find the the scope three emissions of the ink and the paper and the chemicals and the printing presses. And all the, I mean, th- there's a lot of work required there. We need a common data platform, uh, not only across the UK but really kind of globally for SMEs to kind of tap into to to gather that data. And that will be a massive cost reduction for them, because otherwise it's going to be a huge amount of inefficiency brought into the economy as we try and capture that data.
0: I'm happy to build on that one. You're absolutely right. Global common standards would be the, the Nirvana. Um, but this this data is what do you capture? How do you capture it? What's the quality of it once you get it? How do you benchmark it? Um, who's got the authority to set the right sort of standards, etc.? cetera? Um, and big corporates at the moment, they can probably see up and down just a couple of layers in supply chains. Supply chains go down several layers before you get to the the dirt, whether it's the farmer or the mining or whatever, the, the sort of raw ingredients that go into it. So there's a long way to go yet.
2: Because it's passing me and because I'm a politician, I have to speak as well. Uh, so, I mean, I just to, sorry, to rather overstretch this printing company example, <laughs> available for you, and uh, i could give out the phone number at the end. Um, th- so we faced this as a company years ago as people started to want to use recycled, paint, recycled or recyclable. Paper, which are two different things, um, and um, the way that we and we had this issue with data and then ink and looking at, at how and and I, this is like a decade, two decades ago. So I'm thinking it's moved on a long way. But from an SME point of view, basically what I know that we wanted was to know that the upstream seller had done that for us, so that they could tell us that we were in the right place if we bought this particular range of papers or inks or, or what have you. So on the data point, it's not that we needed to know. This is how it was anyway, that we'd done everything, but we had to have a way of auditing it through the whole um, process, and which is why I think this is both top down and bottom up. From bottom up, companies, our customers, need to require this level of assurance, whether that's some coming to a printing company asking for uh, the highest possible green standards, or whether it's top down, not just from um, the banks and larger businesses who are ordering or the larger businesses are ordering the product and the banks are funding it, but also from the government. And that's where our role comes in, where we have to gradually show through ratcheting through, uh, through clear signals about where we expect the market to go, what the expectation will be in X amount of time. So on a different, bigger scale, with cars, for example, once I was Transport Secretary the last three or four years, uh, I took the decision earlier than Europe, earlier than other countries, that we would, by 2030, not be selling any more new diesel or petrol, pure diesel or petrol cars in this country. It's an earlier deadline than any other manufacturing car manufacturing country in the world. And actually, the sectors, which includes lots of SMEs as well as the actual manufacturers, um, took that very well and very quickly altered their business model and were actually pleased to have the amount of time that they had to know that the change was coming. That's the way it looks at least eight years out. And I think that um, there's a lot we can do through uh, being clear about our regulatory intent, which doesn't mean more regulation necessary, but certainly clear directions on, on regulation as well.
0: I was just going to say that is brilliant because the earlier we have this certainty around policy and the indication they're more orderly and fair and just the transition is going to be and that is going to affect those smes the most and that's what six seven million of them in the uk 17 million employees that's a lot of people over half of the private turnover that's a lot of people if you can help give that certainty and then everything as you say will fall in line
3: just also add on the the reporting point that you you touched on earlier um I, i'll the largest corporates are getting frustrated that we are going to potentially start having different reporting standards in different jurisdictions and so on. And I'm sure there's good reason for why different jurisdictions are going in slightly different directions, but it isn't really helpful. And I think we're kidding ourselves that we think anybody's going to get it right the first time. If we think about financial reporting standards, they are constantly being revised to deal with market changes and so on. So whatever standards any territory uh, Introducers, they are going to change time and time ag- again so we would be we would be better to just compromise quickly get a set of standards uh, applied globally and then refine and improve over time
1: it was interesting. you mentioned this, one of our sessions earlier, we were speaking um, with the. Uh, uh, they're doing a similar project in France around SMEs, and we're we're both kind of at the beginning of this journey. So we've already kind of made plans for there's a meet as an, an SME platform meeting at the OECD in December. So we've already made plans as of about two hours ago to make sure that we start linking up on that, and because absolutely everybody agrees, and we've there's so many institutions that are worldwide that we really need to to get a grip on these things and right now it is actually the smes that are bearing the brunt and i always like to say if you're a food producer and you potentially have supply four supermarkets and have two bank accounts you're potentially being asked for six different sets of information in different formats which is kind of bonkers i think is a technical term for it as and uh, we also have so many different different methods of, of calculation coming up and nothing's consistent. And I always think it's a bit akin to if the big four were going out competing with each other on how they present a balance sheet or, or a P and L. And we really need to get to the point where we we agree on that as, as a thing. So um, this is, a, I kind of had some questions asked, but I think it's just going a bit more. <laughs> actually as we go i guess in in terms of the uk what do you think that we need to do to kind of continue kind of playing our role you know and and being at the forefront of of the of being green finance yeah and and how do we kind of collaborate internationally to make sure that we do have the 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 set of standards that we're all talking about
2: i think as i mentioned at the beginning we're we're fortunate to have actually hosted cop 26 when we when we did um it put us right at the front line of so many of these um issues the delay in uh, hosting and all of the covid things also um kind of took the world to a slightly different point i imagine it would have been quite different if things hadn't uh, developed uh, as they had with with covid the world obviously would be a very different place but anyway all of that leads me to think that with the uk's um strength in finance Um, and therefore our natural ability to influence the way that the world develops the rules and regulations around it. uh, I think that's incredibly important. We're here in Egypt at at, uh, COP27, and I was talking to the equivalent of the FCA uh, last night at the um, finance minister's um, dinner, who um, basically revealed to me that they sort of pretty much picked up and copied and pasted the rules that we put in uh, place in many regards um, and, uh, again, not because actually as a minister I said this is what must now happen, I couldn't if I wanted to, but because actually we have this renowned reputation for, you know, um, sound um, finance uh, planning, um, which, for the most part, uh, which, um, which uh, in regulatory terms, uh, uh, which, which, as I say, I, I think actually is, is very, you know, duplicatable, duplicated copied? Easily copyable. <laughs> no, I'm going to stop now. Uh, you know what I mean. Uh, yes. Uh, and and I think that that's hugely advantageous. And so I think it came at the right moment. As I said right at the beginning, we've got to the point where 90% of the world has signed up, GDP of the world has signed up to uh, net zero by 2050. Um, so uh, now we get down to the business of writing the rules, putting the structures in place, making sure that the, the financial uh, approach is followed. I love your 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 point about the big four, and if you had different accounting rules, you know, to present balance sheets differently for everyone, or, or what have you. Um, but actually, how did we end up there? Uh, it's a very interesting lesson. I mean, the world, broadly speaking, got together, not entirely, because you do get different accounting standards, but broadly speaking. And certainly in the industrialized world, you can recognize a balance sheet from one uh, country to another. You couldn't do it and have mergers and acquisitions
3: and what have you without it. So I think the same process is needed here, uh, my observation. I mean, I think the, the city of London is a, in a, a, a great position to, to drive the green finance debate. I mean, it's, it's arguably the most innovative uh, global financial center. Um, there's a reason why 20 out of 21 of the world's sovereign wealth funds open their first European offices in London, uh, it's where people want to be based and I think um, it, the the ask is to, to, to make the City of London as accessible and as flexible as it, as it has been uh, in the past, the best talent and al- allowing that that um, innovation, world-class regulation, to to flourish, uh, and I've got every confidence that the talent there will lead the the world in in green finance because the talent and the brain power to come up with these new products uh, um, is, is there's no better place to do that in London, and then it it gets replicated uh, elsewhere. So I think if we can create the environment for for the city to flourish, the green finance uh, will flourish with it.
0: I echo those it may sound a bit too self-serving if i build on it so i'll pass it back but um definitely
1: although i think this kind of brings us back around to to where we were before around demand signals as well and i think one of the areas that we certainly from our member banks have heard levels of frustration is the, is the kind of lack of the really long-term demand signals and what's actually always brought up as the kind of what we need is the equivalent of that ev Policy that you brought in—it yeah. was that—that was—it's always kind of referred to as if we only had something like that happen again, say in retrofitting in, in other areas, that would give us the really, really clear policy right. signals we need to move forward. And so, um, you've well, got a good model to work off yeah, of. It's it, you, really... you yourself, <laughs> there. Yeah. I'm, I'm
2: really, I'm, I'm really struck by that. I mean, the, I think the 2030 thing, which, by the way, wasn't an easy debate when we were talking to the car manufacturers in advance for two or three years. Um, Alok Sharma was actually business secretary at the time, so he had the job I have now and became cop president and held the two jobs together for a while. And um, so he and I would talk to the uh, car manufacturers simultaneously, me as transport secretary, him as business secretary. And what they said to us for a long time in those conversations in the couple of years lead up was, "Mm, this is very difficult. You're going to make us uncompetitive. You will recognize these arguments. You will make us uncompetitive with the rest of the world. Uh, We're thinking of maybe moving the factory to somewhere else, Europe or or, or something if you do this. Um, Don't be so damaging. Just give us a little bit more time. Uh, And it went on and on. Eventually, I said to Alec, look, actually, uh, I'm going to wager, uh, you know, here that uh, providing the certainty and being uh, the front runner, being, being, uh, you know, setting this out first is going to give Britain advantages. Let's go for it. And we did. And on the day that we did it, every single one of the car manufacturers, a surprising number in the UK, there were 15 uh, or so uh, manufacturers. And even those that look small actually can have quite large numbers because they sell very expensive products, like McLaren or something. Um, and um, every single one of the car manufacturers put out press notices on the day we did it, saying we've been calling for this all along. We don't know why the government was so slow, and we, we love net zero. I mean, we love getting to, to, to zero emissions by 2030. So um, they're falling over themselves to prove the point, and I think it has provided the certainty. So now I'm on the other side of the fence in in Bays as the business secretary. I'm very uh, minded with that experience on cars and the wind farm example, where I remember being in the Cameron government, I was in his cabinet 10, 12 years ago, we were having conversations about how wind power is more expensive than the strike price would be more that we're having to guarantee be more expensive than nuclear power, um, you know, and it doesn't 10 years later, and we have like the world's largest provision of wind power, uh, we, 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 we have auctions where we're not having to put taxpayers money in and all the rest of it. So I think that um, my view on regulatory certainty, as practiced in my previous role, is something I'm liable to want to continue to do now in this business role.
0: Again, absolutely welcome that one, because the sooner we get the certainty, the big players can align, we can help the capacity come down and the knowledge into the SMEs as well. Um, We've also got to remember that this isn't just a sort of a national thing, we are not going to achieve this on our own. So we need to sort of address international as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's it from an SME. Uh, it needs to be a, a level playing field. They need to be able to d- deal with this on an international basis because otherwise, again, makes us uncompetitive. But, I mean, I think clear guidance right now is what people want.
0: Bankers for Net Zero will be hosting a programme of thought-leading events at COP27 at Stand P9 in the Green Zone, or you can follow them via their website, bankersfornetzero.co.uk, and go to the COP-specific page. And subscribe to this podcast to get episodes of Talking Cop as soon as they drop. Oh, that rhymed. On the ground here at Sharm El Sheikh. You've been listening to Talking Cop from Bankers
2: for Net Zero.